Hi, Hi Rock. I'm so glad to be with you on this third Sunday of Advent as we worship God together, anticipating the coming Christ. I love going to concerts. And, and no, my voice is not gone because I just went to a concert. <laughs> no, there's something so powerful about being in a place with hundreds or thousands of other people singing the same song. It connects to the part of our brain that creates dopamine, and it, and it gives us this huge hit that will inspire us long after the event is done. Experiencing live music with other people can help us feel more connected to others, and it transcends barriers of race, class, gender, whatever. No matter what we bring in with us individually, when the music starts, we start to share a lot more. We have the same focal point and the same emotional state. Maybe you've experienced that when you've sung worship songs at church with other people. The energy of the people around you helps encourage you to focus more on God, and the singing with others helps you not feel so alone. It seems that we are wired to crave this sort of unity, and music has a powerful way of connecting us. And most people I talk to feel the desire for unity more than ever. We're aware of so much war and rhetoric and division in our world, and yet nothing we have tried to do to resolve it has brought about any real change. Perhaps because we can never agree on the same solutions to bring change. If music can connect us by helping bring our focus and emotions into alignment, it feels that we're all listening to different songs. We can't even hope towards a future together. Personally, I see this in certain family dynamics. There was a major conflict on one side of my family and that it's not been resolved yet. At its core, family members have insisted on doing things their own way at the expense of others, and it's caused major hurt. And it's one thing to have our own way when we're in the car, right? Driving alone, you can go ahead and sing as loud as you want and sing whatever you please. But if we're singing as a group, like at a concert or in a choir, well, then we're called to be a part, a part of something bigger than ourselves. And so if one of us keeps insisting on doing things our own way, singing at our own tempo, or singing at our own pitch, uh, it makes the whole thing a mess. But shouldn't the church be different? Shouldn't we be that choir that sings together, creating harmony instead of discord? After all, Scripture reminds us that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. But church, how many of us feel like we're actually experiencing this? How many of us actually just feel alone? Like we can't seem to sing together or experience peace. 15% of churchgoers considered leaving their churches in the last few months. And most reasons have to do with avoiding conflict due to difference within the church body. We're scared of being on the losing side of the conflict, so we just leave. But how can we offer anything different to the world if we can't even sing together in the church? Our text today invites us to consider that God already has given us a song we can sing, joining in with God's people throughout all time that anticipates this unity where sad divisions will cease. This is Mary's song, the Magnificat. As we begin, we find Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the home of her relatives, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, who Pastor Walt reminded us was set to go before Mary's child, turning the hearts of God's people back to God. I think this is important. Elizabeth's child has been marked with a blessing and a task, and she could perhaps see Mary's child as a threat. 
In a world that tells us that we have to get the solos or sing the loudest to be important, Elizabeth could respond with jealousy or, or fear at Mary's arrival. But Elizabeth is singing God's song, a song of unity. Celebrating Mary's pregnancy doesn't diminish the importance of her own. Both pregnancies and children give glory to God, so there's no need to one-up Mary. In fact, she can just celebrate her arrival. I think we face this pressure too. I typically see folks respond to the success of others in three ways. One, we try to connect. Maybe we feel alone or we're so aware of the differences between us, so when someone shares a win, we try to connect but end up just inserting our own opinion or experience onto them and actually neglect them. The second response is that we feel insecure. When we hear about other people's successes, we may feel inadequate about our own lives, so we end up one-upping them. Or third, we end up making it about us. If the conversation is about someone else for too long, that makes us uncomfortable. So we end up bringing it back to our favorite subject, which we are an expert at. <laughs> it's us. <laughs> we can feel like another person's success means that we're losing. We create a conflict instead of experiencing the peace that we long for. Elizabeth doesn't do this. Instead of drowning Mary out, she focuses on Mary and celebrates with her. It allows Mary the freedom to join in singing too. She joins her voice to Elizabeth, but expands it even further to include her ancestors. When we make space for each other's songs, the choir can grow and the sound can carry farther. As a people who have always had access to the written word, the significance of this being a song might be lost on us. We read articles and textbooks, or we look to the writing of scripture to help shape how we remember the past. But Mary lived in a time where very few people could read history or scripture. And as God's chosen people, the Israelites had to pass on their story through song. Even today, people memorize the entire Old Testament through singing and chanting. A shared song helped them hold on to a shared hope of what God could do. They brought their own voices, but they also made space for the others in the choir. As Mary begins to sing, she is participating in a concert that spans generations. She shares a focus on who God is and a hope for a future with God's people before her. This song intentionally calls back to the song of Hannah, the woman who gave birth to Samuel in the Old Testament. Note the parallels between these songs and how they invite us to sing with them. Hannah was barren, meaning she was trying to conceive a child but wasn't able to. She went to God in prayer, naming the injustice that she had experienced. Mary was also childless, but it was because she was a virgin. We don't see anything in the text that says Mary was actively suffering like Hannah, but she was a part of a people who were being oppressed in spirit and body. Their song was hers too. So when the angel tells her who her child will be, it seems that Mary understands what that means. The son of God whose kingdom would have no end. Like Pastor John mentioned last week, she knew the songs of David in the Psalms that spoke of God's kingdom, where true justice and unity for her people would prevail. Her song was a song of her people. Their hope was in God, in whom nothing is impossible. The first half of Hannah's song proclaims and preserves the memory of what God has done. It's a song of God's power to reverse all that is unjust and broken in the world. She rejoices in the Lord, the one who saves and brings life from the barren places. Where there was hunger, there are now full bellies. Where poverty, now wealth. God is the focal point of the song and emotions are gratitude. 
The first half of Mary's song is this same reminder of God's faithfulness in the past. And it's a reminder that God's people can put their hope in him now. Poor and rich, hungry and full, death and life, these injustices in our world have always existed and they've created painful division. Too often we try to address this by keeping our songs separate. But trying to sing over songs of pain with songs of joy doesn't erase the pain. We can't create peace by silencing the truth about pain. I understand the instinct to just sing happy songs. It's what most families tend to do. Put on a happy front for the world. And when everything blew up in our family, it was in part because we had kept our songs of pain and hurt tucked away so as to not disrupt that happy image. And eventually it just came out, but it was ugly. We hadn't practiced singing about pain together. So our anger came out against each other instead of at the sin that had come between us. We tried to drown each other out and create peace that way. But this isn't really peace. It's not really unity. Hannah's song doesn't disagree. Humans cannot achieve unity and peace on their own. Only God has been able to do this. God alone has the power to bring justice where there isn't any, to bring reconciliation where divisions exist, to bring truth in the midst of our lives. Our hope isn't in other people figuring it out. It's that our God has the power to do the impossible. And so the woman who has been hopeless because she couldn't bear a child is now singing the praises of God. The woman whose people were hopeless because they lived under oppression is now singing the praises of God. Both Hannah and Mary start their song the same way, and they respond to God's miraculous provision in the same way, with humility. Hannah dedicates her child to the Lord. Likewise, Mary and Joseph dedicate Jesus to the Lord when the time came. The songs begin with proclaiming and preserving what God had done. They name the pain that separation from God has caused, and they continue with the hope of what God will do to make it right. And they ask the one who sings, to respond with humility in dedicating their lives to the Lord. Hannah's son Samuel went on to be an important judge, prophet, and priest in Israel's history. Back then, Israel didn't have a king. God was their king. And when they needed a strong central leader to unify them, God would raise up judges to lead the nation. But Israel wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to achieve unity with a visible king and the institutional power and security that that represented. They wanted peace and unity strength. But choosing that kind of king was a rejection of God. So before he gave the people what he wanted, God warned them through Samuel, this king that they wanted that wasn't God, this king would take away everything from them, their sons and daughters, the crops of their field and the cattle of their herds. They wanted what God could provide, but they couldn't dedicate their lives to the Lord. Only God could provide the sort of security and unity they longed for, they didn't have the humility to accept God's way of life. So they rejected God. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Israel struggled to stand apart as God's people. Their kingdom was divided, they were captured, and eventually they were returned back home. But their commitment to God never returned entirely. They focused on themselves instead of God. They blamed everyone else instead of acknowledging their part in causing this mess. Instead of being humble, they were proud. They loved evil more than good. They hoarded food instead of being generous. They chose to rule with violence and lied, and they called it justice. 
No matter how much they tried, they could not keep their promises to God to be God's people. But God promised that one day things would be made right. One day a Messiah would come to make things right and keep the promises that the people could not. This was the song that Mary knew. Mary heard the song of hope that her people sang and echoed it back that her hope was also in God. Through her humility, she can find herself in God's song. New Testament professor Robert Tannehill says that Mary's song is like an aria in an opera. This is a moment where time slows down. The song invites us to consider more deeply what it means that God will reverse the status quo in our own lives and in the world. It's nothing that we can achieve, but when we submit to God, the impossible becomes possible. If we're a part of God's people, perhaps this give us, gives us a great confidence. But then we get to the part that ought to give us pause. This part that gave Mary hope, but for many of us at High Rock, might be a little scary. It seems that the hope of God's future comes with a fundamental reordering of society. Some might hear this and be quick to write it off as just another power play, but it's just coming from a different angle. But the reordering that God is doing isn't about people grabbing power. It's not about finding peace and unity through strength. It's about people letting go of what they think that will lead to life, but actually isn't. In Mary's song, it seems that the hope of God's promises of real justice and unity come from the dismantling of some of the very things we have placed our hope in. We are like other nations who rely on the strength of our kings, of our militaries, of our wealth and our power. But Mary's song calls us back to being a part of God's kingdom. We who rely on God. In a world that tells us to place the blame on everyone else, we're called the humility. I think we can often say yes to God's kingdom because we do long for a reversal of so much of the pain and suffering that we experience in this world. But when we're confronted with the pain that sin causes, we just want to drown it out. So we end up settling for a false peace instead of the true shalom that God offers. Singing with Mary means holding both pain and joy together. It means confessing the ways that we have not listened to each other and have tried to create harmony by silencing each other. So when we hear Mary's song and we allow it to examine us, perhaps we realize we don't want to go back to needing to sing with Mary because choosing humility is hard and lonely. On our own, it's impossible. But Mary's song invites us back to remember that we belong to a king who has done what is impossible and calls us to follow him. Because as Pastor Walt introduced for us in week one, God has always used unified families as a witness to what God could do. Their relationships were a blessing to the world, but under the weight of sin, they were divided and they couldn't be a witness. But Jesus is the ultimate witness to what is possible in God's kingdom. And Jesus came to establish a new family to bear witness to God's blessings. This was a family that was unified across every division that the world could create. And Jesus invited us to sing with him towards God's song. Instead of choosing power, Jesus chose humility. This is our king who was born in a dirty barn and quickly became a refugee. He was rejected by his hometown and scorned by his people. Instead of commanding a seat of honor, he washed the feet of his disciples. He made time for any who would seek him, the rich, the poor, the powerful, and the weak. And eventually he died in the same way that he lived, in humility. Even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Friends, this is the king we look forward to welcoming at Christmas. A God who has always drawn near to make the impossible possible. Who literally came and put on flesh out of love for a people who could never fully return that love. Who sang God's song of love for humanity in such a way that we might finally believe that it was true. And it's through Christ's faithfulness that all of humanity has an opportunity to experience the greatest reversal of all, life instead of death. As we prepare for this king, we have an opportunity to join this kingdom of great reversal, where we choose humility over hubris, where we choose each other over ourselves. Our world has always known pain and division, and our solutions have never brought the unity and peace that we all want. But Christ has made that possible. And the only way we'll experience it together is if we all choose humility together. That means that in places of conflict, where we find it easier to turn on each other, humility invites us to choose love for each other. It invites us to choose each other over ourselves. In the months that went on after our initial conflict with our family, Brad and I wrestled about what we were supposed to do. We felt so hurt. We felt like some of our ang- our actions were justified. <laughs> we felt like everyone was blaming us, and it was so hard to imagine trusting these people again. We just wondered if they would ever trust us again. <laughs> it felt easier to just keep singing our own song. But we were left with a false peace, and our anxiety never really resolved. But we decided to follow the way of Jesus towards true peace and unity. So it meant that we had to take the road of humility first. So we sat down with everyone and we apologized for anything that we could think of, the things that were named, the things that the Spirit convicted us of. It was so painful, uh, and today none of that has been reciprocated. But you know what? The world didn't end. For some of these folks, our humility was a sign of our love and commitment to them. It started to open doors that I didn't think would be possible, except that this is the way of our God who makes the impossible possible. Choosing to sing this song with each other in humility is an act of love because perfect love drives out fear. And if we are called to sing one song with all of God's people, then we have an obligation. But it's not an obligation to ourselves to live on the basis of our own selfishness. Because if you're going to live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you'll live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. This is the invitation to new life in this new family that we hear in Mary's song, no matter our position or privilege in the world, that we are led by God's spirit and are God's children, that whatever we feel we might lose when we choose to engage humbly with each other is nothing compared to what we gain in Christ. Because friends, God has chosen the church to be the body of Christ in the world. We are meant to participate in this reversal by choosing to sing in unity with each other instead of only singing by ourselves. This unity is the witness to the world of how our God can make the impossible possible. If you find yourself uncomfortable with the reversals in Mary's song, I'd encourage you to stay in it for this last two weeks of Advent out of love for your fellow Christian, to choose the path of humility in the church's song instead of in your own comfort. We all need to welcome Jesus this season, to empower us to embrace each other so that we might sing with God 
To that end, would you join me in praying a prayer of confession where we welcome Jesus for the sake of the world?